0: This is Space Time Series 26, Episode 94, for broadcast on the 7th of August 2023. Coming up on Space Time, Voyager 2 loses contact with Earth, claims that plate tectonics on Earth recently underwent a fundamental change, and a new mission to the International Space Station. All that and more coming up on Space Time.
1: Welcome to SpaceTime with Stuart Gary.
0: NASA mission managers have confirmed that the Voyager 2 spacecraft is alive and well. Officials at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California lost contact with the probe almost 20 billion kilometers away, well beyond our solar system, and traveling through interstellar space. It appears a faulty command sent up two weeks ago caused an accidental deviation of the spacecraft's antenna by two degrees away from a direct line of sight to Earth, cutting communications. The loss of signal cut all contact with the Voyager 2, preventing the spacecraft from receiving commands or transmitting data back to Earth. Mission managers are still trying to determine exactly how the problem originated. Voyager just simply disappeared off the screens. But then NASA's Canberra Deep Space Communications Network's 70-meter dish detected the heartbeat signal of the 46-year-old spacecraft, determining it was still alive and well and operating nominally. The Canberra Tracking Station then bombarded Voyager 2's vicinity with the correct command in the hopes that it would hit the mark, triggering the spacecraft to move its antenna back into the correct position towards the Earth. Travelling at the speed of light, it still took the signal some 18 and a half hours to reach the probe. But it worked, successfully instructing Voyager 2 to reorient itself and turn its antenna back to Earth. Voyager 2 then began returning science telemetry data, indicating it's operating nominally and that it remains on its expected trajectory. Had the attempt failed, mission managers would have been forced to wait until October. That's when an automatic spacecraft reset was planned to take place, which would have seen the probe reorient its antenna towards the Earth automatically. Voyager 2 was launched on a grand tour of the outer solar system back in 1977 along with its identical twin probe Voyager 1. It was a rare alignment of the outer planets at the time, which meant this journey could be undertaken, taking the probes first to Jupiter and then allowing the spacecraft to use the gas giant's gravity to slingshot themselves towards the ringboard of Saturn. From there, Voyager 1 headed out of the solar system in a northerly direction. But Voyager 2 continued on, visiting Uranus and then using the gravity assist of the ice giant to slingshot it to Neptune, before it too moved out of the solar system in a southerly direction. Voyager 2 reached the Jovian system in 1979, the Saturnian system in 1981, Uranus in 1986 and Neptune in 1989. The probe made its historic entry into interstellar space on November 5, 2018 at a distance of 119.7 astronomical units, or 17.9 billion kilometres from the Sun, moving at a velocity of 15.341 kilometres per second relative to the Sun. An astronomical unit is the average distance between the Sun and the Earth, which equates to approximately 150 million kilometres. Meanwhile, Voyager 2's twin spacecraft, Voyager 1, is still communicating and working fine as it travels through interstellar space in a different direction. Voyager 1 is now some 24 billion kilometers from the Earth, making it the most distant spacecraft, consequently the most distant man-made object in existence. The CSIRO's Glenn Nagel from NASA's Canberra Deep Space Tracking Station says the silence from Voyager 2 is a stark reminder of the colossal distances that separate these spacecraft from their home planet.
2: Yeah, so back on the 21st of July, we relayed up to the Voyager 2 spacecraft a series of planned commands. And... The science is not quite sure yet, but it could have been something in the command sequence. It could have been when it was received and uh, can something on the spacecraft caused an anomaly. It could have been a flip bit from a cosmic ray strike on the magnetic tape that it uses to record its commands and data. And uh, it could have been any number of things.
0: Tell us about Voyager 2 and its sister ship, Voyager 1.
2: So Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 were launched in, uh, well, Voyager 2, August 20th, 1977. And just a few weeks later on September 5th, 1977, and Voyager 1 headed away from the Earth. And it sounds funny to launch the second spacecraft before the first one, but because a few weeks later we're a little bit closer in our path around the Sun to get to Jupiter, Voyager 1 could actually get to Jupiter first. And so it arrived there and did its studies. And a few months later, uh, in 1979, uh, the Voyager 2 spacecraft came along and did its encounter. And then Voyager 1, off to Saturn, Voyager 2 followed close behind. But then Voyager 1 headed northward out of the solar system, above the ecliptic plane that the planets orbit on and Voyager 2 was then able to continue on, to go to Uranus and then Neptune in 1989 and then it headed southward out of the solar system. So they're both generally heading in the same direction, just north and south of the ecliptic plane the planet's orbit on. And then they were put on what they called the Millennium Mission. And that was to continue their journey outward to reach the inner boundaries of the outer edge of our solar system, the heliosphere. And the heliosphere, think of it being like a boat going through water, creates a bow shock wave in front of it. So as the solar system travels through the galaxy, the outward rushing energy of our sun collides with the inward rushing energy of all the other stars out there, the interstellar wind meeting the solar wind. And so the Voyager spacecraft, entered that wave, traveled through it, learned a lot about that outer edge of our solar system and its role in surrounding our entire solar system, and then got ahead of the wave. And that was an exciting moment for the science team, where we saw a dramatic change in the you know, the signal, sort of the outward rushing energy of the sun wasn't there anymore. And we're, for the first time, looking at the clean air of interstellar space. And that was quite a remarkable moment Voyager 2 passed that boundary in 2018 and uh, we were with it on that day when that signal came through and we saw the change and I can tell you it was a very excited science team over at such a propulsion Labs that saw that
0: and of course they followed on from the Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecraft which sort of tested the waters didn't they
2: yeah they headed off a number of years earlier they also visited Jupiter and Saturn but with less instrumentation and lower quality cameras and we're talking with talking cameras, not talking digital at that mm-hmm. time where are talking about television cameras, TV tubes, vacuum tubes for to take those amazing images and they gave us those first clips of those two giant worlds close up and that really paved the path for the Voyagers to head off with all their huge suite of instruments and their better quality cameras to take these close up views, not only the planets and those planets ring structures but also the many, many moons around those worlds which in some ways have become far more intriguing than the planets themselves because some of the moons, particularly Jupiter and Saturn have water in their environments under their icy surfaces. And uh, we've learned that those could be environments that could support life somewhere else in our solar system. So yeah, they've got a grand story to tell both the pioneers and the voyagers.
0: And the pioneers were important because they were the ones that warned us the high radiation levels around Jupiter and that allowed the voyagers to be built to handle that.
2: Yeah, we always knew that Jupiter with its very strong magnetic field would create this high radiation environment and it really wasn't until the pioneers got out there that we realized just how intense that radiation is and how the moons interact in that environment and literally create loops of magnetic energy and radiation a donut around Jupiter uh, particularly Io which spews out sulfur from its volcanoes on its surface uh, which were first spotted by Voyager and that creates a very dynamic environment so yeah, we were able to with that. Pioneer spacecraft to make the Voyagers more hardy. And then, of course, from the Voyager information, we could make missions like Galileo and Juno at Jupiter and the Cassini mission at Saturn be quite tough to be able to handle those environments for not just quick flybys, but for years of orbiting and studying those worlds.
0: The two Voyager spacecraft now in interstellar space, where are they going?
2: So for Voyager 2, 20 billion kilometres away at the present time, travelling at about 1.4 million kilometres a day, it's headed off to a distant star with... Well, just a serial number, it won't reach that star for another 296,000 years. But for Voyager 1, heading on its flight path, it will fly within a light year of the star Sirius in just another 40,000 years from now. We'll lose contact with them long before that happens. So if all goes well, we get contact with Voyager 2. constantly in contact with Voyager 1. We should still have at least a radio signal coming back from them that we can detect into the mid-2030s, but eventually they'll get so far away and their signal so small that not even our dishes will detect them anymore. Their signal will be lost in the background noise generated by the rest of the universe in radio frequencies, and then they'll just keep going. Uh, eventually, those two spacecraft uh, traveling through our galaxy will leave our solar system well behind, leave the stars of our neighborhood behind. They'll be the last reminder, actually, that we ever existed. They'll outlast the Earth and outlast the sun, and the last reminder of humanity's place in the universe, which is why the great science teams back at that time, particularly Carl Sagan and John Callis, created the Golden Records on board both Voyager spacecraft with a record of of music and literature and languages cultures, and a little time capsule, a story about humanity. And it was sort of a hopeful you know, thing, promising thing, that we're sending a message in a little tiny spacecraft bottle off into the universe, that vast ocean of space, in a hopeful thought that maybe if there is somebody out there, they'll find it and learn a little bit about us, even if we're already long gone.
0: And the pioneers, are we still able to talk to them at all? I know they were being used for a little while to, to test receivers' ability to pick up Uh, faded signals. Um, What's happening there?
2: For the Pioneer spacecraft, uh, they have long since gone silent. Uh, Much smaller spacecraft, smaller, uh, less powerful transmitters than the Voyagers. The last contact we had with uh, Pioneer uh, 10 was back in 2002. So that was the last whisper from that spacecraft. I'm sure it's probably still out there. It's certainly still out there and maybe even still a amount of power for its radio transmitter, but we simply cannot detect it anymore. So they also carry on board plaques with a little bit of information about who built them, where they came from, and their understandings of, of science and mathematics. So maybe another little hopeful message out to anybody that might be there in the universe.
0: Are they heading for interstellar space as well? They
2: will eventually uh, enter interstellar space, but they don't quite have the speed the Voyager spacecraft, um, which are travelling at about nearly 17 kilometres per second. Uh, So they won't reach escape velocity for the ultimately for the entire solar system so they will stay in a massive solar orbit for many billions of years to come.
0: Okay, and and I guess the only other one then would be New Horizons
2: Yeah, for the New Horizons spacecraft which visited Pluto back in 2015 and then the hypervolt object Arrokost in 2019, uh, it has certainly the escape velocity of the solar so it one day will reach the inner edge and travel through the, the heliosheath boundary, the magnetosphere in our solar system and ultimately enter interstellar space, but whether that mission is still operable by that time and it's taken the Voyager spacecraft, you know, more than 40 years, uh, 46 years now, to reach interstellar space. We've still got a long way to go for the new Horizon spacecraft which uh, only launched in 2006, so it's still got a long way to go uh, to reach that milestone.
0: You guys are constantly preparing for new missions, what's uh, what's on your horizon? So
2: coming up actually later in August uh, we've got the landing of the Indian Space Agency's Chandrayaan 3 spacecraft making uh, their latest attempt to land on the surface of the moon and we'll be directly involved in the the landing as we have been right throughout the mission since launch. September, we've got the return of NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission, returning samples from the asteroid Bennu, which will be uh, very exciting to add to our knowledge of those little space wanderers out there. And Bennu is of particular interest to scientists and understanding more about its composition because Bennu has an orbit which actually crosses the Earth's orbit from time to time. So knowing more about it and its structure and composition will help us understand a bit more on what we might need to do with that object one day might actually come our way. And then October, a big mission for the year, and that's the launch of the Psyche mission from NASA, heading off to the asteroid known as Psyche, which the science team believes it's the... Um, remains of the core of a planet that was once forming in our solar system a long time ago, but effectively an object that ran out of material to grow to become a larger world, and then successive bombardments of that surface with collisions of smaller objects have blasted away the sort of outer uh, you know, surface and left behind just the metal iron core. So this is going to be a really unique mission. We can't get to the core of a planet. Um, we can't drill thousands of kilometres into the Earth. So getting to have a sort of, here's one we made earlier out there in space, the asteroid Psyche gives us a chance to go and have a look at these objects and understand more about the formation of
0: planets. That's the CSIRO's Glenn Nagel from NASA's Canberra Deep Space Tracking Station. And this is space time still to come claims Earth's plate tectonics have recently undergone a fundamental change, and a new mission to the International Space Station. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A new study claims that planet Earth's system of plate tectonics was until recently stratified into two distinct layers. The revolutionary new findings reported in the journal Nature suggest the planet originally had separate upper and lower mantle regions that were isolated from each other. The Earth is truly unique among our solar system's planets. It has vast oceans and abundant life. But Earth's also unique because it's the only planet with plate tectonics. And that not only shaped its geology, its climate and atmosphere, but possibly it also influenced the evolution of life. Plate tectonics describes the movement, interaction and subduction of tectonic plates on the Earth's surface. That movement is driven by the very slow creeping motion of the Earth's mantle, called convection, which carries heat from the interior of the planet to its surface. Researchers believe that convection in the mantle, started shortly after the Earth's formation 4.5 billion years ago, occurs at the scale of the entire mantle. So, when plates collide on the Earth's surface, one gives way and sinks into the hot mantle, ending up in a sort of plate graveyard on the top of Earth's metallic core. However, a new study suggests that this style of plate tectonics may actually be a more recent feature in Earth's geologic history than previously thought. One of the study's authors, Martin Schiller from the University of Copenhagen, says the new research suggests that for most of Earth's history, convection in the mantle was stratified into two distinct layers, namely upper and lower mantle regions that were virtually isolated from each other. This transition between the upper and lower mantle occurs at about 660 kilometres below the Earth's surface. Now, at this depth, certain minerals undergo phase transition. And Schiller and colleagues believe that this phase transition may well be the reason why the upper and lower mantle regions remain mostly isolated. The findings indicate that in the past, recycling and mixing of the subducted plates into the mantle was restricted to just the upper mantle, where there is strong convection. And this is very different from how the authors believe plate tectonics operates today, where subducting plates can sink all the way down into the lower mantle, just above the core mantle boundary. Schiller and colleagues reached their conclusions after developing a new method to produce ultra-high precision measurements of the isotopic composition of the element titanium in various rocks. Isotopes are versions of the same element that have slightly different masses. And the isotopic composition of titanium is modified when crust is formed on the Earth and this makes titanium isotopes useful to trace how surface material, like the crust, is recycled into the earth's mantle through geologic time. Using this new technique, the authors were able to determine the composition of mantle rocks that formed as early as 3.8 billion years ago, all the way through to modern-day lavas. If the recycling and mixing of tectonic plates was restricted to just the upper mantle, as postulated in this new study... It means that the lower mantle could contain undisturbed primordial material. The concept of a primordial mantle refers to a reservoir of mantle material that's remained relatively unchanged and therefore preserved since the very early days of Earth's formation, 4.5 billion years ago. That's when the even earlier Proto-Earth, which formed 4.6 billion years ago, was hit by a Mars-sized planet called Thea, which turned the whole thing back into a magma ocean, resetting the clock for differentiation and eventually separation of the planet into separate outer and inner cores, mantle and crust. Now, the very idea of a primordial reservoir existing deep in the Earth isn't new. It's been suggested previously based on the isotopic composition of rare gases trapped in lavas from modern-day deep-seated volcanoes. However, the interpretation of this state has always been ambiguous, and some have suggested the isotopic signal comes all the way from the Earth's core as opposed to the deep mantle. But because we know titanium isn't present in the Earth's core, it therefore provides a fresh perspective on this long-standing debate. It's an interesting result. This is Space Time. Still to come, a new mission to the International Space Station. And later in the science report, Australia to supply the United States military with a new generation of guided missile. All that and more still to come on Space Time. The Northrop Grumman Cygnus ND-19 cargo ship, carrying some 3,800 kilograms of supplies, has successfully docked to the International Space Station. The mission, which launched from NASA's Wallops Island flight facility on the Virginian Mid-Atlantic coast, was Northrop Grumman's 19th cargo flight to the space station and its eighth under its second commercial resupply services contract with NASA. T-minus five, four, three,
3: two, one...
4: Let's go to the taking Northrop Grumman's commercial resupply mission 19 into orbit to the International Space Station. remains nominal. Flight controllers reporting a nominal ascent for antares Attitude nominal. nominal. Pressurization is nominal. Remain at 100% thrust and steady. Stage 1 TBC is nominal. Attitude nominal. nominal.
3: remains nominal. power is nominal. Uh, vehicle passing through Max-Q. Vehicle now passing through
4: Max-Q. Max-Q is the maximum dynamic pressure experienced on anteries.
3: Core pressurization valves are nominal. Engines remain nominal and steady. LCA, your go. Godspeed, interiors. Thank you, LCA. Halfway through the burn. 100 seconds to MECO. Passing through 30,000 feet. Attitude nominal. Attitude remains nominal. Engine remains nominal. Steady at 100%. Mm-hmm. Passing through 5,000 feet per second. Core pressurization remains nominal. Electrical power is nominal. TVC remains nominal. Engines remain nominal for approximately 40 seconds from MECO. Slow throttle down has begun. Attitude nominal. TVC preset down. slew has started.
4: Three minutes into the flight of Antares we got about 15 seconds until main engine cutoff. Rapid
3: throttle down. steady 55% thrust. And we have main engine cutoff. Ellis is taking care of business. We have stage separation.
4: Confirm stage separation as we lose Nteris into the clouds on this hazy ACS evening.
3: Enabled. ACS is enabled. Stage 2 ignition time. At, uh, mission time 246. Stage 2 ignition expected in approximately 10 seconds. Fairing is separated.
4: Enteri is currently in a coast phase.
3: Stage 2 ignition and TVC battery is nominal.
4: Second stage, solid rocket motor has ignited.
3: Power remains nominal.
4: The stage will burn for 2 minutes and 44 seconds.
3: The Castor 30XL will burn for approximately 2.5 minutes. Power remains nominal. Stage 2 V C is nominal.
4: Flight controllers report, reporting good performance on the second stage.
3: Power remains nominal, TVC remains nominal in stage 2. And power. We approximately 100 seconds from stage 2 burnout. Attitude still nominal. Power remains nominal, stage 2 TVC remains nominal. 50 seconds to stage 2 burnout, TVC, electrical power remain nominal. We're beginning to see tail off in the motor pressure, and we have stage 2 burnout.
4: 6 minutes 55 seconds into the flight, the second stage solid rocket motor has burned out.
3: ACS enabled or ACS payload enabled.
4: We're now entering about approximately a 2 minute coast phase.
3: Antares is in orbit and will coast for roughly 100 seconds prior to payload
4: separation. 7 minutes 45 seconds into the flight of Antares. After spacecraft separation it will take approximately 2 hours 30 minutes uh, until the solar arrays are unfurled to start collecting power uh, for the Cygnus vehicle. Spacecraft separation is coming up on 30 seconds
3: continues to coast prior to payload separation and we have payload separation
4: and the flight control teams confirm Cygnus has separated from the Antares second second stage flying free and beginning its journey to the International Space Station.
3: All right launch team LC on uh, countdown net Uh, we're going to go ahead and proceed with our post-launch checklist we've confirmed that we've had Cygnus uh, separation congratulations to the Cygnus
0: team. This mission also marked the final flight for the Antares 230 rocket originally developed by Orbital science as the Taurus II. A new version of the rocket, to be known as the Antares 330, using a Firefly Aerospace first stage, was expected to launch next year. But delays in development have now pushed that launch date back to the NG-23 mission in 2025. So to fill the gap, at least three Cygnus missions will be launched aboard SpaceX Falcon 9 rockets instead, that means that, as well as launching its own Dragon cargo ships to the International Space Station, the Dragon crew capsules transporting astronauts, SpaceX will also be flying at least three missions for its competitor Northrop Grumman. As to what happens with the other two teams contracted to fly to the International Space Station, namely Boeing Starliner transporting crews aboard an Atlas Now Vulcan rocket and Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser reusable lifting body space plane. Well, they're both well behind schedule, although both are still expected to fly sometime. We'll have updates on both those projects next week. The supplies being brought to the space station aboard the NG-19 Cygnus will support dozens of research experiments now being undertaken by the Expedition 69 crew. These include new gene therapy tests, designed to demonstrate the formation of three-dimensional neuron cell cultures in microgravity, and to test a neuron-specific gene therapy. Also aboard is the sixth spacecraft fire experiment. That's the last in a series to test flammability of different oxygen levels, and to demonstrate fire detection and monitoring, as well as post-fire cleanup capabilities. That's an experiment that will take place aboard the Cygnus cargo ship after that spacecraft has departed from the International Space Station. Another experiment will measure atmospheric density using a multi-needle langmuir probe to monitor plasma densities in the ionosphere. That's where the Earth's atmosphere meets space. The flight's also delivered a new improved water sterilisation and sanitation unit. It'll reduce microbial growth in stored water supplies and can also provide hot water for crew consumption and for food preparation. And there's also an old friend returning to the space station, a little cube-shaped robotic helper called Astro-B. It's been sent back into orbit after some modifications in order to help out with routine tasks. Cygnus has also delivered a condensation module and heat transfer system for a flow boiling and condensation experiment that will help scientists better understand heat distribution and flow in space. And there's also an upgrade for NASA's Cold Atom Lab Quantum Physics Facility, which makes use of the microgravity environment of the space station to study quantum phenomena in ways which simply aren't possible on Earth. The upgrade will give scientists more data in a wider variety of experimental conditions. Once it's all unloaded, the Cygnus spacecraft will be loaded with space station refuse and in October it'll depart the space station loaded with several thousand kilograms of trash and will then burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. This is space time. <music> time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with the Science Report. Australia has entered into a new deal with the United States to supply the US military with a new generation of guided missiles and multiple rocket launch systems. Under the agreement, Australia will need to begin manufacturing the missiles within two years. The Australian government recently set aside $2.7 billion to acquire a long-range strike capability, which would bolster Australian stockpiles and could also be exported to the United States and other friendly nations. The announcement comes as Western nations continue to deplete their own munitions and logistics reserves in the ongoing conflict against Russian invasion of Ukraine. That war is exposing weaknesses in many Western military supply chains, which are now starting to run low on ammunition and missiles. The missile announcement was made during a two-day Australian-U.S. meeting held in the shadows of the vast Talisman-Sabre joint military exercise in Northern Australia. Talisman Sabres seen the deployment of over 30,000 military personnel from Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Germany, France, Japan, South Korea and several Pacific Island nations. It comes as Australia is forced to embark on its own armed forces overhaul and build-up, moving towards longer range strike capabilities in an effort to keep China at arm's length. Beijing's undertaken a massive expansion of its military, both in terms of conventional firepower and in nuclear weapons. China now operates the world's largest military and aggressively targets any nation entering the South China Sea, which it now claims to have taken possession of, contrary to international law. As part of the new deal between Canberra and Washington, Australia has agreed to an American request to expand two military bases in the strategically important north end of the country, thereby allowing them to host more training exercises and increased rotations of American troops and warships. Both nations will also continue working towards using Australia as a safe forward base for the storage, maintenance, repair and overhaul of critical U.S. source munitions and weapons systems. The meeting also discussed progress on the AUKUS security treaty between Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom that will see Australia build its own nuclear submarines and purchase at least three US Navy Virginia-class subs, Congress permitting. As part of the deal, Australia will share its hypersonic rocket and missile technology with the United States. A world-first feasibility study conducted in Australia through a joint public-private sector collaboration has realised the potential of DNA sequencing to expand and improve population newborn screening. The findings reported in the journal Critical Chemistry examine the feasibility of targeted gene sequencing by screening all newborns at or shortly after birth for multiple genetic conditions in a single test. The technology is based on next-generation DNA sequencing tools, allowing hundreds of genes to be simultaneously analysed for variations that cause genetic diseases. Scientists have identified a gene variant common in people who experience no symptoms when they get COVID-19. The findings, reported in the journal Nature, looked at 136 people who reported no COVID symptoms, finding one in five carried a gene variant named HLA-B star-1501, which is involved in immune responses. In a separate arm of the study, scientists found T-cells that reacted to some fragments of COVID-19 in people with a gene variant who had never had COVID-19 suggesting they may have developed some form of immunity to COVID-19 through previous exposure to other infections. Almost 7 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus since it was first detected near China's Wuhan Institute of Virology around September 2019. The World Health Organization estimates the true death tolls likely to be around 18 million, with some 770 million confirmed cases globally. That's 10% of the world's population. Well, with all the talk of unexplained anomalous phenomena across the United States at the moment, a Washington state resident can almost be forgiven for thinking she saw what must have been a UFO one morning. Instead, however, she's discovered a new level of embarrassment and public humiliation after posting a video online of what she claimed was an alien spacecraft. The rather bulbous rocket-shaped unidentified flying object was spotted hovering silently above the tree line in the golden morning sunlight. The woman filming the incident described the object as enormous, very fat and appearing to have fins coming out of the bottom. Possibly it's an alien mothership. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptic says, In reality, it was a hot air balloon shaped like a comical fat rocket that's been operated for the past 16 years by a local hot air balloon company.
1: Well, actually, UFO sightings—they actually started around Washington, didn't they? Oh, uh, of
0: course, yes. The, the, the
1: Arnold flying saucer things. Yes, you know, they started up in around Washington near Mount Rainier. Again, this is sort of silly stories you get all the time. People who film something, and people can film everything all, all the time these days because they're carrying the camera in their pocket, and they'll film something and they'll instantly put it up on Facebook or wherever their their movie, and say, "Look, this is mysterious. It cannot be explained." And some of them can't be explained because you just don't have any detail, and therefore you have to leave it as unexplained, which a lot of people don't understand what that means in UFOs. It's unidentified for a reason. You can't explain it. doesn't mean it's a flying saucer. But anyway, that's a different issue. But uh, people keep putting up these videos of things they've seen and of course instantly everyone goes, oh wow, wow, it's a flying saucer. Uh, Someone saw this shape that looked to be a huge, roundish, elongated shape floating in the sky and it seemed to have fins of it. And someone said, that looks like an alien rocket. And someone pointed out, it's not an alien rocket, it's a balloon that looks like a rocket with fins. Someone designed it that way, and as you see in these hot air balloons and things like that, they often design them to look at the most amazing shapes, and this one, someone had designed it to look like a, a rocket ship, vertical, with fins coming out the side, and someone had filmed that, and because they instantly assume, I don't know what it is therefore it must be a flying saucer, or an alien of some sort, they put it up and everyone believes it. And these things take about, ooh, 10 seconds to debunk, and if the person who had put it up thought about it for 10 seconds, they might have hesitated, but if you're the sort of person who believes in UFOs, and this was described as a mothership UFO, because the a mothership's a good term to use because it's big rather than a little thing whizzing around. And it was very strange, very silly, very jump to conclusions. And a lot of people out there who would believe it because it's just strange. So therefore they instantly say, strange, alien, rather than strange, funny-looking balloon.
0: That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And you can see a picture of the hot air balloon come UFO mothership on our website. Just go to the Spacetime Tumblr blog.